0: Roger Channon, and welcome to the podcast. I hope everybody is doing well and staying healthy. Today's guest is Mike Schuster, the founder of Michael Schuster Associates. Maybe you just know their firm as MSA, but they have had a huge impact on the Cincinnati area with the creation of such projects as the Great American Ballpark, where our Cincinnati Reds play. Uh, they did our Nippert Stadium renovation and the Blue Ash Summit. Park, which just turned out absolutely gorgeous. And the list uh, just keeps going on. Mike's firm has done many sports, education, corporate, civic, religious projects all around the Cincinnati area and the country. And I'll leave a link to the MSA website in the podcast description so you can check out all of their cool projects. Welcome, Mike. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast.
1: Well, thanks for having me. I I uh, I, uh, I appreciate you talking to me. I'm in my basement, but uh staying safe and healthy and uh no I I I'm looking forward to talking to you.
0: We really appreciate it and I have a confession to make. We did the first fifteen minutes of this interview yesterday, but my computer had an error, so we lost it all and Mike was kind enough to come back the next day and re record, which is so nice of him. And uh We'll get into it then.
1: Okay, great. So let's start with
0: you and your background. How did you become interested in architecture? I know you went to the University of Cincinnati and just that story and your journey through school.
1: Sure. Well, one of the things that um, I I never thought about doing when I was a kid, and a lot of a lot of people do, I, I've had a lot of students when I was teaching at UC, you'd find out why people came into architecture. I ask all my people, why do you get into it? And a lot of them say, well, you know, I ever, I wanted to be one since I grew up. I said, well, I never really thought about it. Um, I didn't know what an architect did. I didn't know what architecture was. I was decent. Um, I was very decent in math. So I, I was good in math. And so everybody thought I might do something with science or engineering or something like that. I, you know, I don't, I don't quite know, but, um, what had happened was, uh, my, uh, my family moved to Cincinnati uh, when I was three years old. And uh, when was, by the time I was 13, my father, who was a physician in, in Cincinnati, and he's a good physician and took care of his patients real well, but he was a really bad business guy. And his, his, uh, his little practice went bankrupt. He didn't have any money. And he got it bought out by a small um, small town practice in a, in a southeastern Ohio town, a coal mining town. It was called Barnesville, Ohio. So he went there, and I ended up going to high school there in a very, very small, uh, very rural farm, coal mining kind of town. Um, you know, no one ever talked about architecture there. There wasn't anything really there to talk about. And, you know, there's a bunch of pole barns and a few houses and things like that. There actually was, now that I recall, there actually was a Richardson building on the uh on the main corner but we're not sure if it was done by him or one of his uh disciples because it is very Richardsonian. but uh never really thought about it um went to school uh high school uh wasn't um particularly a good student, uh, didn't like to spend a lot of time in classrooms and things. And, uh, but I found art and uh, and an art teacher, she was awesome. Uh, she saw I had something. She was one of those special teachers you'll never forget about. And, uh, she got me to draw and I started to draw perspective drawings of buildings and houses. And I just liked to do it. And, um, you know, started like that and wasn't sure what I was going to do. And, uh, she got together with my guidance counselor somewhere around my senior year and said, Uh, what, what, what can we do with this guy? He's got to do something because I wasn't doing much in high school. And they, uh, they, they thought, well, why don't you do some architectural, you know, engineering or something like that. So uh, I went home and, and talked to my father. He knew, uh, a guy down at UC who taught in architecture. He said, go down and see him. He's a great guy. And I went down to visit him. Um, and again, not knowing much about architecture or anything like that, uh, This guy was, I I guess he was in his 60s, gray hair, long gray hair, big beard, bib overalls, flannel shirt. I said, this is the coolest guy I've ever met. He took me around to school and he sold me. I really thought it was going to be a a great thing. So I went into architecture not really knowing what it was. But that's how I got into architecture and the University of Cincinnati. That's how I got
0: there. So That's really cool. And he clearly was right as you started an amazing firm where you have, 55 plus people working for you. So that was a a good decision on your part and, and good for him for pushing you into it because you've been so successful. That's so awesome. Well, thanks. Yeah. Appreciate it. So you're, you go to architecture school, you're going through, Um, what point did you know you wanted to maybe start your firm or what was the story of, of how MSA came to be? Well, I mean, I got to go back to college a little bit. I I, I got
1: into architecture because they said I should, um, and not knowing what I was going to do, I got into it. And the first year was kind of rough, didn't know what it was all about. And, and uh, by the time I was done with my second year, my grade point average wasn't exactly what you call dean's list. Mm-hmm. And I had, a, and I had a, a professor ask me at the end of my sophomore year, he said, uh, so uh, you really want to do this because I'm not sure it's right for you said, well, and I'm kind of one of those people, I guess, that I don't, I like to, I like to prove people are wrong too. <laughs> so it was I so, probably saw it as a challenge, but at the same time, I met one of the most wonderful, gifted, compassionate men I've ever met in my life. And he's still, he's still around today. Uh, he's a, he's a, he's a mentor and friend. His name is Gilborn. He taught industrial design at the university of Cincinnati and also a lot of drawing classes. I took a, drawing class from him at my, uh, sophomore year, my second, my last, uh, quarter of my sophomore year and, uh, took a class with him and, uh, figured out, Hey, I could draw. I was, I wasn't bad. And, uh, so that was kind of the beginning of doing that. I, I, uh, after that quarter, again, not doing real well. Um, I moved, uh, I went into construction. I actually worked construction for a short period of time for about three or four months, uh, really enjoyed that aspect of things, construction. And um, then um, uh, the next quarter, I was going to go back to school, but my father became ill and I went back home to help to take care of the house and a few things around there. And I got a job in a lumber company there, learning how to drive stuff around and do all kinds of little tasks and chores. And so I essentially had six months of construction under me, came back to school uh, the following uh, quarter and uh, decided I was going to turn it on and uh, drew and drew and drew and drew and drew I drew a lot. I drew an awful lot and got decent enough. And by the time I graduated, I was doing decent. I had opportunities to work in a lot of locations, a lot of places around the country, a lot of offers um, to, uh, by professors to put in good words to me. And I said, nah, I'm not going to work for about, uh, I'm going to work for a little bit. I need to take a break. i worked very hard on my thesis project and very, very, very time consuming. I said, I'm going to take a break. I worked in a, uh, I worked for a friend of mine helping to build a bar, uh, for about four or five months doing jackhammering, shoveling crap around, putting up drywall insulation and all kinds of stuff. And after that, I, Said now it's gonna time to find a job. So I wasn't sure. You uh, he, he would ask me. He said you know when did you really know you were gonna do your firm? And, and, and I think deep down, um, now that I think about it, um, I think I always knew I couldn't work for someone else. Just wasn't that person. I was fairly entrepreneur. Uh, I was the kid that always had you know lemonade stands. When <laughs> someone else would make you know five bucks, I'd make twenty. You know I was uh, I was always wheeling and dealing. When I was in college, I sold beer at the ballpark and used to make big tips and things like that. And I was always doing stuff. I was always moving around a lot with different jobs and things. And, um, but um, I graduated. I, I, I went to work in a bar and uh, got some good, more construction experience. And then I went to go look for a job. It was 1980, and there was, there was a recession. I sent in resumes to every architectural firm in the city, got nothing back. Uh, Finally, this one guy called me back. He said, hey, you want to work for a few months? I got a project. I said, sure. I ended up working with him for about three years. And and then uh, from there, moved on to another firm, a larger firm. I wanted to, the first firm was a very small firm and I wanted to work with a larger firm. And I did that for a couple of years and um, just felt like they were more about the numbers. You know, who, who, you know, who worked there, who didn't work there. And, you know, it, it just didn't feel very personal. It wasn't where I wanted to go. A friend of mine said, Why don't you go hang up your shingle and do some work? And so I started my own firm. So that's, that's awesome. That's how, that's
0: how I got started. That's a great story. So cool. I want to go back to something you said too. You spent a lot of time working in construction, and I spent some time in construction, and it really just changed my perspective on what an architect's role is. I came back to the office, not so much thinking about um, space and the client. As some, And I still thought about those, but I also thought about, hey, I'm drawing something that somebody else is going to have to build. Am I doing this clearly? You know, I didn't miss a dimension again after getting out of construction. So I'm curious if you think that helped you when it came to your architectural work, just being in the field.
1: Well, there's no question about it. Um, you know, I think that there are a few ways to teach architecture. Uh, and historically, there's a lot of ways to teach architecture, but uh, typically a lot of architecture is thrown into a couple different realms. One is the, the, the education of it. One is the idea that it's theoretical, that we are very thoughtful, creative, strategic design people who will change the world by our thinking and lines on paper. And then there is the camp that says architecture is about doing buildings where the roofs don't leak and we have to make sure we build them right. And I kind of felt that that second one about building itself and just pure building was really about the builder, the the contractor. And the theoretical part to me didn't seem as practical as you'd maybe never get things built. And I think the essence of architecture is to get things built. So having that construction experience mixed with some fairly good strategic and theoretical uh, philosophical architectural background um, I think is the key. And I, I, I'll i always say that. I'll always say that um, if somebody says, should I work construction for a while? My parents think it's a mistake because, uh, you know, you should go into architecture, or work in an office. I'd say go work construction, get your hands dirty and figure out what the guys and gals in the field are doing. You'll have a better appreciation of what they do and you'll do better work. You'll know what you're doing. So I agree with you 110 percent. No question.
0: Definitely. Thank you. Yeah. And the other great thing is you'll come back from the the field with so many stories that you would never get in the office and you can tell oh. your, I mean, so many. <laughs> oh, i got it. What, there's one
1: particular, so I worked for a guy. He was a wonderful, wonderful guy. And, uh, we were, he also hired another guy to work that summer who, who, um, he, uh, he could not hear, uh, he was deaf and he could read lips and he couldn't speak uh, very clearly, but he could, you could understand his language and he could lip read very, very well. But one day we're doing We're doing some work in a very dusty, dirty demolition area. We're taking apart some beams, you know, from the ceiling and the roof up above and, and, uh, everybody's got masks on their face. And the the guy I'm working for, I'm holding one end of this big beam, just holding it in place while he cuts the other one. And he cuts the other part and it starts to slip and he starts yelling at the other guy. And he just, and he didn't even couldn't hear him because he can't, he can't lip read because he had a mask on. So he almost lost the beam. And and finally the guy, finally, uh, he, the Henry was the guy's name. He figured out, he was yelling at him and he helped him out. But there's a lot of different stories about working construction. It's a, it's a great, I love it. I'd absolutely loved every part of it. And, came home tired and went to bed and, you know, slept good. You know,
0: it's good. It was good, good work. Definitely. Very cool. So let's head back to you You're starting your firm. Can you highlight some of the initial challenges you faced when you were starting a practice and maybe how you overcame those, those challenges?
1: Well, one of the biggest problems with starting a firm is the idea that, well, how do I put this? Um, I've, I've done a lot of reading about starting for, you know, starting the firm and starting businesses. And one of one of the resources that I did was uh, I read a book called The E-Myth Revisited. Um, and it talks about being an entrepreneur and how do you start a company and what is a manager within the role of that and what is a technician? And it's the E and the M and the T. So the idea is that most businesses are started by technicians. That is the T, the people that do things. For instance, you're a really great cook. Uh, you are a really uh, great landscaper. You are a really, you're a t- gifted uh, artist or a, uh, uh, an illustrator. <clears throat> and uh, so what happened was I had a lot of extra work while I was working for another company. I had a lot of extra work doing illustrations and drawings. I had spent a lot of time doing that. I'd gotten fairly proficient at that. And I, I, um, did a lot of drawings and I thought I had a lot of work because man, I'm always working. I've got to have a lot of, uh, surely have a lot of work, had a couple of small projects. And I said, man, I'm on my way. And one of the biggest mistakes that people make is that when you turn your love of doing something, the technician part, the thing you love to do into a full-time gig, uh, you realize pretty quickly that, you need to keep finding work. And that was something that was the biggest lesson I learned is you have to always look for more opportunities constantly. And that was, that was really the, the biggest learning I had. The, the other parts, you know, here about the financial parts and so forth and so on. But, but being able to generate work and create a business that could do the things you wanted to do, that was really critical. And that was that was the big learning. That was the big those other learnings. But that was the biggest one that I I came away with. Interesting. Um, So the the uh, I wanted to also kind of throw out the idea that that um, with the idea of the starting a business and being an entrepreneur um, and being a technician, uh, that if you're good at actually bringing in work, that is being the entrepreneur. Now you have so much work, you can't do it. And then you have to hire people and now you got to manage them. And that was the next, that was the next item that was very, 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 um, interesting to learn. But, um, those are, those are, and, and as I look at the business, those were the two items that were really the biggest learnings that I never really thought anything about until I got
0: into the business itself. Interesting. Yeah. I imagine when you have to start bringing on new employees and taking on a different role in the projects, it just, it, it, it creates a whole unique new set of challenges. Yeah. So- what? Yeah, one of the things that
1: happened, which was interesting, and I know that we talk about architecture, is that, you know, as a as a as a person running the firm and being the only person there, I was constantly being the person that was doing design work and the fun the stuff that I really had passion for. And as you start bringing in new people in to be employees, they tend to be now the people doing that, and you're not doing that as much, and so it becomes a little bit more frustrating about having to manage that process. And, and that's part of the growing pains of that of that process, too. Uh, that was very early on about how to work with people and get the most out of them. And that's another element of something I've learned along the way.
0: One question, too, um, is why did you choose Cincinnati to start a firm? Was it just convenience? Because Cincinnati is such a a, a unique market. I mean, you think of like New York and Chicago mm-hmm. and and out west, and they're just – so different, but at Cincinnati it seems it's very like profit driven. It's very hard to put out very good looking architecture like you have, and I'm curious how you you manage that. That
1: is that is the that's that was the million dollar question, and you hit the nail right on the head. Because when I came out of school, um, I had opportunities to go to to Portland. I remember the firms. Uh, one was in Portland. One was in Chicago. One was in Washington. One was in Boston, and two were in New York. And uh, I was married and I uh, would talk to my wife and I said, you know, what do you want to do? And and she's from Ohio. She's up from Cleveland. And I said, you know, I really love Cincinnati. There's something beautiful about this city and there's something engaging about it. And I would really love to be able to stay um, in Cincinnati and stay here and, and conduct a practice in Cincinnati for Uh, and see what happens because I, because I think Cincinnati has a lot to offer. That being said, Cincinnati is not what you'd call the the hotbed of design. Um, it's a very conservative town. It doesn't have a lot of, um, uh, people that are willing to do, um, design work. All right. So anyway, so the idea of staying in Cincinnati was intriguing to me. And I thought, you know, I can do design work here. Oh, sure. I was a, you know, oh, yeah. Any, any, I can convince people to do it. And as I got more and more into the Cincinnati area, you really find that it is indeed the idea of profitability within the idea of a business that architecture, a lot of architecture firms in Cincinnati really focused on the idea of just doing projects. And Well, not to take that away from any one of them, but You you started to feel that it was that there wasn't any very cutting edge, creative level design happening with with uh, a lot of firms in the city. There were there was groups, there was some people, but as a whole, it wasn't there. Um, And I think it goes back to the idea that you, you know, you, you just don't see the client asking for it all the time. Now, that being said, one of the interesting things about architecture in the city of Cincinnati, I had a conversation with somebody a number of years ago, and I said, uh, what what are some of your favorite buildings in Cincinnati? And he kept talking about the University of Cincinnati. And as we all know, the University of Cincinnati has a lot of signature architectural buildings done by signature firms all over the the world sitting uh, up on the campus in Clifton. And He kept naming buildings that were all up at UC, and then he named uh, the Contemporary Arts Center, which was downtown in Cincinnati, done by Zaha Hadid. And and I said, you know, all those buildings you named were designed by firms outside of Cincinnati. And he said, I guess you're right. They are. And I asked him, and this is not an architect. I said, why do you think that is? And he said, I said, do you think it's because we have this conservative homegrown kind of idea and the clients don't want to do that? He said, maybe in part. But he said, I think a lot of architects in town don't really ask their clients to push their limits a bit more. And maybe we could have architects that might challenge their clients to think bigger and more significantly than just a simple building. And that conversation happened probably about 15, oh, 15 plus years ago. And I've, I've never forgotten it because I said it's our responsibility as architects to show our clients what the opportunities are. Because when people hire an architect, they hire someone to make a difference. They don't hire someone to just put a roof over their head. They have a different reason for it. Hmm. And our, our job is to find the best solutions or the most creative solutions that we can given all the factors that we're dealing with. So I so at the end of the day, I think Cincinnati is the ideal place to be. First of all, Cincinnati is a beautiful, beautiful city. It is one of the most beautiful cities in the country. I've traveled around the entire country. There are there aren't as many cities as beautiful with our hills and our river and Mm -hmm. all the wonderful things around it. We we have something special here and I think we're starting to build on that. And uh, that's my, my goal is, uh, is to say, why can't we be a firm in Cincinnati that is recognized nationally to do design work? Why not here? Why not us? And that's what we tell our folks in our office every day. And that's how
0: we get the kind of quality of work that we're, we're getting out of our office. That's a great. And, and I would say you've definitely achieved <clears throat> that. I've always wondered, too, let's say you take two developments and yeah. they're the same size and they have the same amount of units. And then okay. I take like the, ter- I'm thinking the traditional Cincinnati one that kind of just looks plain. And then I'm thinking of the one that you could have done that has some defining feature to it that people look at and say, that's beautiful. I mean, would that even cost that much more in many circumstances than just the boring looking one?
1: Well, you know, I think when you go to the, the cutting room floor and you cut everything out that costs any kind of money, the answer is, uh, you know, you get what you get. But I I think at the end of the day, and that is that is again a question we ask ourselves on a on a daily basis. But but at the end of the day, what you're trying to do is to do something that is memorable and important. Now realize that you're dealing with stuff in the time frame that you're dealing with. That is whenever you're doing it, and you know, ten years from now, you may have missed the mark on a couple things, but it at the end, it, it, people want something that's special. And and I don't like to use this word necessarily in terms of, you know, the description of the work, but wow, that's really cool. And I like that word. Don't get me wrong, but because, but people want something to inspire their, their senses and their sensibility. Um, we're currently doing a building out in, out in um, Sharonville. It's in a, it's in an industrial area. It's a police station. Hmm. It doesn't sound really that interesting necessarily, but, um, we, it's a simple building. It's got two components. One is a front part that has a lot of offices and some other main uh, administrative functions. And in the back is very, very utilitarian. It's got places for cars and labs and stuff like that. And when you connect them, you can connect them with just a brick box here and a brick box there. But we decided we would do something totally different. We're, we're, we're It's hard to describe. We're, we're refacing the building as though it's this long, very long, linear, but but angular surface treatment on the edges. And we made a model and did these drawings. We showed it to the client, and the client said, that is a handsome building. We need that building. And they said they wanted it. And I think that what happens is too many times we anticipate as designers, we anticipate or we think that oh, that's all our client will want, and we stop. And I think stopping is the worst thing that we can do. I don't think it's fair, and I don't think I don't think it's 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 being uh, truthful about the opportunities to our clients. I think we have we have to show them the potential. People when people go to um, Say they want to go on a, a, a vacation. Well, right now they don't, but, mm-hmm. you know, let's so just say they want to go on vacation. So they've never been to a particular place and they want to find uh, maybe a, 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 a hotel to stay in, but it's maybe near a vacation spot. So what do they do? They go online right now. They look at pictures. They look at prices and somewhere between the two, there's a value. And they look at it and they say, I can afford this, but that one's just a little bit more. But look at this. It's so cool. There's a great lobby. It's, there's a pool that does this. This does that. This is that. I, oh, the room is beautiful. It's not dated. I love it. And they'll spend that dollars. Not, not twice as much, not five times as much. But they will always look and say, do I want something eh, for, a, for a price that I thought I wanted? Or do I want something that's really awesome for a little bit more? And I have found that our job of pushing clients is one of the most valuable jobs that we can do as architects. In this city, we need to do it. I think some architects are doing it and some aren't. We're trying to be one that does.
0: That's a great point. I I love that analogy. And it's so simple and easy to understand and yet so truthful. So that is so cool. Do you want to talk a little bit about some of the... Projects, your favorite projects you've worked on from over the years, some of the ones that you think were huge successes and and that nature.
1: Well, there's a couple things that are there's a there's a couple of
0: ones that are um,
1: that stand out because they they helped us develop a business along the way. In other words, we got into a market area which allowed us to grow and get more opportunities. So those to me always have a little bit of a of a good place in in my in my heart because they opened doors for us. But from a design standpoint, I always, you know, people ask me this question all the time and I always come back to say, you know, I, I, it's always the next project. You know, it's always once, uh, you know, oh, the next project's going to be the project that I really think is going to be the best project ever. But that being said is um, I, Summit Park is pretty interesting to me because we were able to do some things at Summit Park that we were never, we never thought capable because of the, the, Uh, very conservative, very, very uh, don't want to spend any money kind of community, but they wanted something special. And we had an opportunity of just doing places like a little pavilion or a little this or a little that. But as we started to show them ideas about a a big glass canopy, uh, four creative columns holding it up, a big wedge literally of of glass going up being a cover. Uh, And we modeled it and we showed them with drawings and they said, Oh, I love that because we again, we showed them the opportunities and we got to the tower part and we we did the same thing. We did a tall, big model. We internally illuminated it. We had a huge drawings and we showed them what it could be with incredibly strong design communication tools. And we showed them that the opportunities. And at the end of the day, what they said was. We wanted someplace special. This makes it special, and I think that 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 goes back to that whole idea of, of we have a we have a responsibility and obligation to create special places. Um, we did Government Square downtown, which is an interesting project. It's it's bus stops. It's all it is. It's 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 bus shelters and a bus stop, but it's a very strong urban project. Uh, we finished it many years ago. Uh, it still stands the test of time. And that was one of the most interesting projects in, I think, in our uh, history uh, from a different reason. We had about 25 to 30 people as critics, call it stakeholders, that we had to present things to on a regular basis. And you couldn't say, hey, this is going to be really cool design. We're going to do these tall things and this thing that suspends and all this other stuff. We couldn't say that. We had to say, At the bottom, we're going to have a a two and a half to three foot tall, very, very rough textured granite stone so that it'll withstand all the people that are moving around the buses. Then we're going to have glass from about three foot to about 10 feet tall that's clear. So if the police were on one side of the the area, they could look and see through the whole place. And then we wanted to cover people with the buses that would come off the buses, but we couldn't use big structure because we didn't want big columns. So we put columns up very tall and we suspended cables to hold up these roof structures. So every decision that we made design-wise was about a reason. But at the end of the day, we knew that design and high-level design was, was what we were trying to achieve. But we never, ever, ever said, hey, we want to do this because this design will look great. We never did that. But at the end of the day, we got something that was really special. Now, I've always loved that project because it taught me that if you explain things in a way, you can still get levels of design and you can't be arbitrary and not in this city. You really can't be arbitrary. You have to have reasons, even if they're poetic reasons. You have to have uh, poetic reasons. Um, and, and, either, and I think there's just so many projects. I, like I said, the one project I really love right now, it's it's a police station out in Sharonville. It's it's just it's it's literally just this wall that kind of moves around and and it's something that Cincinnati hasn't seen. It's it's going to be something that's fairly unique. Um, Really super. Just just enjoy it. We've just done the FC Training Center um, and it's just instead of just making a training center, we added a lot of articulation uh, with angularity, especially with some very, 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 very creative canopies. That talk about the energy of the soccer game and how that all works together, and uh, they built them and they go, they're fantastic. They love them. Those are really cool. The players love them. It's really it's cool and it's dynamic. And and again, I think that I just we love that we love that project because it does that. And the the guy from um, MLS comes in and he says uh, this is the best training facility in northern in northern America, North wow. America. So, you know, so, so that, you know, in design wise, we, we captured it and we have a great firm, no question, but we, we, we always try to do something that makes it just that much more special.
0: Wow. That's amazing. Yeah. I, I hear people say all too often, I don't think an architect's role is really impacting community um, you know, that's more of the client, that's more of politicians and other people making decisions. But I think this is prime evidence of, I mean, you've done some amazing projects that have really impacted a community. I mean, when you say Blue Ash, I think of that tower. I mean, I don't think about the grassy field or any of the other buildings. I mean, Summit Park comes to mind and I mean, that's so successful and great job.
1: Well, I appreciate it, but you know, it's interesting is that, um, I I think that you you – I think architects are the people that help solve the problems that other people put in front of them. And the difference between a building done as architecture and a building done as just a building are really evident as you walk into it. And I think people feel that way. They either feel – they feel it. They may not know what they're feeling, but they feel it. I think architects are absolutely invaluable. And I think that when an architect um, shares their value with the community, they can make a difference. Um, in 1996, seven or eight, somewhere in there, um, I got involved with the riverfront and riverfront planning in this community because the Reds were going to do a new ballpark. And there was a tax initiative that came up and we got on the side of the uh, the idea of putting a ballpark on the riverfront because that makes sense to me. You have infrastructure in place. It's the right place. It's the image of the city. And there was a whole other group that wanted to put it up a little bit north where a bus station kind of sits right now. And right now, a casino actually sits on that site right now. Oh. And, and, and I fought that. And I said, you know, I said, I, I, I went on record when all the other architects in town kept saying, we wanted it up in Broadway Commons. That's what the area they called it. Because it's going to be like Coors Field in downtown Lodo in, in Denver, and and I and we did an, 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 a, just an exhaustive study about parking and walking and locations and how it would work, and ultimately we got very involved with the Cincinnati Reds with the idea of how you would plan that building on the riverfront, and we were hired as the design consultant for the for the ballpark, but at the end of the day. One of the things I'm always proud of is the way that we were able to help craft the image of the front of the city by administratively and politically connecting all the dots, and that is connecting the planning dot with the needs of the client, with the needs of the city, with the the investment of the city and the economics of the city by using the existing infrastructure and putting it in place. So I, I think that 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 time, that project taught me the importance of being involved in your community and being out there and being recognized as someone whose opinion you probably ought to listen to. And I'm not saying it's mine, but I think it's architect's. You need to listen to architect's opinion. Mm. Um, when architects become selfish and all they want to do is a design, you know, I, I have this little thing I do from time to time talking about the idea of architects have a bunch of Edsels in their garage. And whenever a client says there's a project, they try to pull out something that they want to build or design rather than what the client really ought to have. And when you listen to your client and listen to their inner thoughts, what they're really positioning, then they know their project you know, architects know their, I mean, clients know their project. They know what they want to try to achieve. Your job is to ask them questions over and over, listen to them by talking about what they want, and solving the problems in a way where they didn't see it ever coming in a way that overwhelms them. And I believe that good architects can overwhelm a client with something I never thought I could even imagine this being. And when you get that kind of comment, you know, you've created something unique and and we're getting there. And I wish that I was a bit younger and I could do this in the city and build on what we have right now. But um, I, I think that we are building something with our firm that has a legacy value that goes way beyond um, the other firms in the city. And that's my goal. Our goal is to build a legacy firm that goes on for many, many, many years and becomes the go to uh, design firm uh, in the region and become a national firm. Uh, if you don't have that kind of goal, why are you in the, why are you being an architect? That's what I say every day. Hmm.
0: I think that's one of the greatest lessons ever said on this podcast. Just your client knows your project. I mean, that's, that makes so much sense, but I've never heard that before. Nobody's ever said that to me before. So oh. that's so cool.
1: Well, I think you can, I mean, I can't, I think you can talk about, um, the, uh, Design is design. And but I but I think if you show compassion for your client and that is I care about what you want and I care about your your commodity, you know, what you need in terms of spaces and I care about your budget and I care about your schedule. But I'm going to help you come up with something you never thought was was even in your wildest dreams, because we're going to think about it and not just throw some old crap on. it. And um, and to me, your clients then look at you as though you've you've developed a relationship where they see you as someone who can help inform their architecture and their work for many years to come. We're we're currently working with um, the Great Oak School System. The Great Oak School System is a is a uh, vocational school system. We started working with them almost 15 years ago and they didn't know us enough at first. And our first couple projects with them, we tried and pushed and pushed but as we've gotten to know them and they've gotten to know us over time with trust we're doing design work for them that is helping them solve solve a lot of their problems about how do they educate their students? How do they get their students excited about the idea of, of vocational training? You know, how do you how do you tr- take a student who normally you know might be uh, they're just going to go be an auto mechanic and how do you put them in an environment where they go gosh I this is cool I can't wait to go to school every day and learn about being an auto mechanic I love this place this place gives me energy, and we have been able to do that with our schools to where they're not we don't we don't we do we never ever ever judge our client and we never ever ever judge the user we everybody deserves architecture everybody does um, i want to go back real quick to, to government square when we did government sure. square it was finished it's a beautiful project i i'm proud of that project a lot it really uh, is it, i love it and um when when i told one a, a good friend of mine businessman in town i said yeah he said how you doing i said i'm doing fine Mike. i said i'm doing fine he said said he said what have you been working on i said well i just want to tell you about this project we've been doing did government square downtown? Have you seen it? And he said, yeah, I've seen it. I don't know why we spent that much money for people that just ride buses. And mm. I said, wow, why, why don't we allow everyone to have access to really important, strong, well-thought-out architecture? And it occurred to me that architecture isn't isn't a class. It's not about classism. It is about everyone has should have that opportunity, um, that, that to have great arc to have architecture, something thought about don't ever be condescending to a client. Don't say, Hey, they don't deserve that. I'll just do this for them. That's all they deserve. Never think like that. Always say, how can I make something much better and more unique?
0: That's, that's so true. And you know, the coronavirus has been terrible, but I think that has woken a lot of people up to, there isn't a real classism. I mean, the people that we respect the most right now and we're most thankful for are the first responders, people still working, truck drivers, grocery store employees. And I think that's just fantastic to have recognition to people who do these amazing jobs.
1: It's a good point. It's a good point because I, I, I think that, uh, I think that people sometimes confuse opportunity that they've been given with automatic success. And, and and I think that's not right. And I grew up, like I said, I grew up, went to high school in a small coal mining town. I actually worked in a coal mine for about four to five months before I went to college. And that's when I've really figured out that I didn't want to work in a coal mine. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to go to college because it wasn't the kind of life that I really wanted to wanted to live. But one of the things that my father taught me and, and my mother did, along the way, um, was you treat everybody with respect and dignity. Everyone you don't judge them. If they've got more money, you don't judge them better than someone that doesn't have it. And it's hard sometimes to do that. And it's hard for all of us to do that. But I think that when you look at, when, when I go to a job site, one of the things I tell all our folks on a job site, when you see anyone on a job site, I don't care if they're carrying a box, pushing a broom, sanding a wall, putting up a wire, doing this, doing any job on that job site, they're more important than you are at that point in time. You are the least important person on that job site. You treat, I don't care if it's the person sweeping the floor, you, you get out of their way, you treat them with a high level of respect. And that's the firm that I want to have, is that we respect the people that, that build our buildings, that use our buildings and, and, and engage with us. And by the way, when you treat people with a level of respect at all levels, you actually get more out of them and and you actually get their their energy. And energy doesn't cost money. Energy everybody has energy and you can get yeah. energy from anybody anytime.
0: It's a very mutually beneficial relationship for all the parties at that point because everybody knows respect, I mean that's ultimately I think what we all want is respect. So it's exchanged and it's everybody appreciates it. I did, I did have a question. So when you're working on these projects that are really different for the Cincinnati area, and I'm, I imagine you have to take extra care, especially for stadiums, um, extra care in finding a good engineering partner. And then, the, I'm, is there like, is it, how do you find experienced people that know how to put these new and amazing buildings together?
1: Well, it's a good, it's a good question. Um, and there are some good engineers in, in this city and we use a number of them and they're very very good but we also have have uh, through a lot of our sport work um, engaged with a couple of very strong uh, nationally recognized but uh, nationally skillful firms that have uh, unique skills in you know in, in big structure you know in big and big elements and Understanding the complexities of putting together a, a big area, we 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 did a lot of work down at the Minute Maid Ballpark uh, recently for the Houston Astros, and we had an, we we by default had an engineer down there, uh, Walter P Moore, great guys, great gals, um, and we literally had to take apart big parts of trusses that were already in place. We totally renovated the center field area. We were taking you know, literally um, demoing. 50, 60 foot long, massive trusses and underpinning foundations underneath a, a roof, uh, a, 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 a structural system that held the roof track. And if, if you mess any of that up, you've messed up the building. And, you know, that kind of engineer doesn't necessarily exist in Cincinnati right now. They, they don't have that level of experience. I think you have a lot of talent, but you don't always have that experience. So what we've done is we've we've coupled um, engineers from out of town that have unique specialties with some of the local engineers to help build them um, uh, with experience as well. Uh, One project, which uh, we really haven't shown much because it's still uh, pending, is we uh, we were hired a number of years ago to work on um, redoing Calhoun Hall, which is up at UC. It's a Mm. dorm. It's pretty.
0: uh, It needs it. It's pretty done.
1: Uh It's pretty awful, actually. And um, we worked with um, for a long time with Beth McGrew. Beth McGrew used to be the university architect. She's moved on to uh, Pittsburgh. Uh, Loved work with her. She challenged us every day, and we came up with a uh, a design that one of the bases of it was to use a lot of prefabrication of elements because we had a very tight site. How could we design it so it would be creative? How can we put it together so that from a construction standpoint, we don't have to have a lot of area on the ground because we didn't have a lot of construction zone? We came up with a couple of ideas, and it involved having an engineer from Boulder, Colorado, uh, doing a mega panel. The panel is uh, nine and a half, 10 feet tall by about 20 some odd feet long. Uh, the idea, and it's not built right now, but it's, it's pending, it's process. Um, that this panel would be built off-site, including windows, including the facade, including everything, and literally being brought in with a truck, uh, pulled up from the truck uh, directly onto the building structure and put in place. So you don't do, you don't lay down materials. You don't have areas where you're putting a lot of workers at risk in and you know, in a, in a 12, 13, 14-story building. And the idea is that you could clad that building in a matter of months, rather than a matter of a half a year or, or actually, we, we I think we got it down to about forty five to sixty days. The trucks would come in, they would put up X number of panels a day, lift them up with a crane and go. But the engineer we used uh, was out of Boulder who who did who did a tremendous amount of work and speaks nationally internationally on doing facades and panelization of facades because. Hmm prefabrication is one of the things we all have to get used to. I mean, you look at coronavirus, for instance, and one of the ideas is you're putting a lot of workmen, workwomen, uh, in very close quarters in construction sites to put things together. But if you can factory build larger components, bring them into the site, lift them up in place and minimize the work hours on site, uh, and also in the factory, you can minimize the proximity of people working together if you need to for that particular reason. Uh, that you have the prefabrication of elements is something we're looking at every day. We do a lot of digital design looking at the idea of prefabrication of elements. And I think that using those engineers, and then we had a local engineer who worked on the project, and now all of a sudden they get a lot of experience working collectively together. So, So it's the idea of we have great people here, but we want to expand their experiences by bringing in people to support them. In key areas, the same way with mechanical engineers and so forth. Um, we have a great group of of people that we work with here.
0: That's that's a great answer, and that kind of answered a question I'd always wondered too, as an architect. When you're approaching a giant new project, say like Great American Ballpark, or even if you're just starting out and you get a project and you're not really sure, uh, you know what the construction drawing should look like, or your things you're not sure about is just don't be afraid to hire a consultant or somebody who's done this already to help you. Don't never be, you know, I
1: I think that that goes back to the whole idea of hiring. If, if, if you think you can, and a lot of architects historically have, have taken on the kind of imagery of, I know how to do all of this stuff. I can do everything. I know what I'm doing. And I've always felt that, boy, there's a lot of people better than me at a lot of things. And that's the same thing we preach at our office it's not who can do this. We talk about who is the right person to do this. And I think that reaching out and finding expertise is just as valuable as anything else. And you learn from that expertise very, very quickly because you, you bring in you bring in uh, the, the best people that you can to help you along the way. You can't be afraid of bringing in people. You can't be afraid of not knowing how to do something. Um, but you also have to be interested in Learning about it, so the next time you're more equipped to handle it.
0: Hmm. That makes a lot of sense. That's what
1: what we're trying to do. We're, try, we're trying to, from a business perspective, you know, going from you know one person, you know, number of years ago to our fifty-some people now. Uh, it's because we developed the idea of strength in numbers and using the right people. Um, it can be difficult at times, but we have, uh, we are. We are a very cultural mindset, and that's the mindset I want to put in front of our folks, is that um, respect for others, respect for other people's expertise, and don't be afraid to be wrong, but don't be afraid to bring in someone who's better than you. And um, I've brought in a lot of employees and now associates and friends that are far better than me at a lot of things. And if you don't do that, all you're going to do is end up being in charge of people that don't know how to do things. So that's, hire better, always hire better than you.
0: That's great advice. Um, one of the things we love to talk about on this podcast is what the future and everybody kind of has a little different idea of what the future <laughs> might look like. And I'm curious as your perspective, on uh, maybe what some of the important architectural trends of the future is. Uh,
1: I, I've always felt, um, that the humanization of architecture is essential, um, But I also think that that includes the idea of uniqueness. So I I think that with the ability for us to build things that we never thought we could build before through the machining and digital technology, prefabrication, doing things, you know, I can cut a straight line with a saw, but, uh, you know, a, a, a special machine can cut something in a different shape. And now make something that you never thought you could afford to do, make it very valuable and very op- an opportunity to do. And I think the future of architecture can't be just about the industrialization or the fabrication or the technology or, the, or how we fabricate. But those are the tools that we use to create humanistic environments that value the people that are using the buildings that we have put them in. And I think too many times we put people in buildings that are not human, not humanistic. And I think that the people that are going to be able to incorporate all the technology that we, we have available to us, how we build it, um, how the air systems work, how the, uh, the, the wiring, the technology, the, the, the advanced levels of command opportunities within that, and humanize it are going to be the most successful places. I don't think we, we want to have – I think when people tried to imagine what the future of our world would be back in the, in, the, you know, in the 30s and the 40s and the 50s, it was about flying cars and spaceships and all this other stuff and everything was going to look slick and all this stuff. And I think, I think we're going to get back to the idea of trying to slow it down a bit and create places that give us joy and delight on a regular basis. And there are some architects that are doing really, really good work internationally with that. But as a mainstream, I think we're going to see uh, we're going to see the combination of technology and hu- and and humanistic design form itself even more so um, going forward. That's,
0: that's fantastic. That's, that's yes,
1: yeah. that's, that's my guess.
0: Hmm. I, the other thing I really appreciate about UNMSA MSA is I I am not going to say names, but there's a, a especially where I live in Oakley, there's a lot of development. And it is so cheap, so cheap. Like those buildings, I, I have no resident who moved into a, one of these developments. And I mean, it's a big development and they're like, well, I'm on the top floor and it's leaking already. And it's only been three years since it's been up and mm-hmm. you, you take extra care to choose the right materials. And that goes a long way too, in the human aspect of just putting a good development. Well,
1: because you can put a, just because you can put a box up and put a material on it and rent it doesn't make it anything that's good. Um, I think that the, the problem with some of those projects is they are we, we call them developer driven and, and I'm not pointing out any specific developer or any specific architect in terms of do it, but they basically become very commoditized structures. And because of that, they, they base their success on what kind of money they will return into the marketplace. How much do I buy the land for? How much do I build the building for? And then how much can I rent it and, or, or sell it for? And, and when can I make a profit? And that equation is the equation that everybody that looks at building as a commodity does. That's just how they do it. That's fine. It's just a different marketplace. But at the end of the day, the life cycle costs of doing a building like that, that tends to, like you said, leak or have other problems or deteriorate uh, or not create the right spaces, not be something somebody wants to live in. The rents go down, the, the, the deterioration of the project happens, and then therefore the deterioration of the community happens with that too. And I think that the long-term life cycle value of doing better work makes more sense But you have to get it past that initial sniff test, the the eye test, you know, how much money did it cost? Mm. So I think a lot of architects tend to not challenge those folks that are in the commoditized building market to say, why don't we spend a little bit more money here? Uh, They try, but, you know, it gets flashed down. And I think that that's one of the reasons why, from a business perspective, we've tended to work with more municipal institutional Corporate, uh, private, and or unique clients along the way, and I think those folks see that there's a long-term value. Most most projects that are commoditized talk about the idea of uh, developing them and then turning them over to make a profit. In other words, they sell them, they're rid of them, they're gone. And I think when you have a college or a university or a, or a corporate client or a municipality, they'll never sell the project. So they're, they're saying, how much is it going to cost me today and how much is it going to cost me in 15 years? And all you got to do is do the math, and that's when you get better pieces of architecture and better buildings. And, 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 and now the other thing that I think, though, uh, is that if we can do prefabrication of elements that are better built in a factory than on site and incorporate those in a, in a cost-effective way into commoditized buildings – we will have at least better commoditized buildings, and I think that's when we start uh, having the factories that can build bigger components and be able to fabricate bigger elements in a more successful way, um, effectively and cost-effectively. Um, we'll have better commoditized architecture. Uh, that is the you, you, your your um, perception and your uh, observation of that are very very valuable and right on and I think that um, at the end of the day in 10 years what building do you want to live in um, you kind of answer the question yourself when you say that's not very good I want to live in something that's better so
0: there you go if you're a big developer listening or you work for a developer there's a business opportunity here the experts are saying that so yes,
1: I think so. <laughs> I think you can I think you can get there but it's always a, it's always a
0: challenge very cool. we're We're almost out of time here, so I have a couple um, last questions, sure. and one of them is uh, the majority of my listeners are young professionals or students just getting started out in the world. Do you have any advice for those types of people um, looking to get into the profession?
1: Actually, I do. Um, one of the things that I've talked about a lot is, and i and I started doing it myself, and I'm not trying to say that um, that i um, that that I know more than anyone else does. But I do believe that, that the human uh, – first of all, I think that, that anybody that gets into an architectural school is an incredibly bright person. Um, the the, 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 uh, the uh, admissions requirements for architecture in, in universities is very, very high. Um, and you have a lot of people that, are, that are the, have the ability to think and to do. But one of the things about a technology um, is that it has divorced itself from the human hand in terms of drawing. And I believe at the end of the day um, that it, uh, my best advice, uh, and there's a lot of other advice beyond this, but if you want to be a really good design architect, I think you need to learn to teach your brain how to think three dimensionally, and that, and therein, I think you need to teach it how to draw. And if the computer draws for you, then you're not then you're not putting those little nerve endings together that teach your brain to think in three dimensions. The more you draw in three dimensions or build a model, a physical model, not a, not a three-dimensional digital model. The more you do those things, and like you said before, construction, the more you build things, the more you see things and create your arms around, your, your head around the idea of getting your brain to think in three dimensions, you will be more successful. I don't know that everybody agrees with that, but I can tell you the best designers ha- also have intuitive levels of drawing in, in their arsenal. I, I do think it's very critical. Uh, the digital technology is awesome. I love it. It's a tool. It is not the end all. It is a tool. Very
0: cool. Yeah. I hear that a lot, so maybe Good. I should take it more serious myself. But
1: I love to draw. I I, uh, I draw as much as I possibly can. I love to do it.
0: Yeah. It's definitely something I've fallen out of recently. So I'm going to – You'll get back Yeah, we'll all get back into You'll get back to it. Well, that's awesome. Um, do you have any other messages you want to share to I, our listeners?
1: What I think is this: I think that never underestimate great architecture. It has great value, and it and it stands the test of time. And ask yourself the question the next time you travel, and you travel with people that are not architects—just people going to some place. Ask yourself ask them, what do you want to go see today? And they'll say, oh, let's go down to the Bean at in Chicago, or let's mm-hmm. go to the Eiffel Tower, or let's go to the you know, Paris Opera House, or let's go to um, mm-hmm. a building, let's go to a place. And typically they say that, and what they're saying is that those are important to them. And I think too many architects forget about the idea that buildings are important to to everyone. And at the end of the day, strive to do something that is meaningful, because if you're not doing something meaningful, then it's not going to help the human condition. Everything we do should really revolve around the idea of having a meaning behind it. And if you do um, and get excited about it, um, you'll be fine. And one last thing. I've always said this, um, if you have passion about what you do, no matter what, if you're an architecture student and you're listening to this and you don't really like architecture, but you like some other component of it and you really love it, you'll be be really good at what you really love. You'll be okay because you're smart at at anything that you want to be. But when you love something, you'll be as good as you possibly can. So always follow what you love, and when you follow it, you'll be successful.
0: Beautifully said. Beautifully said. That is great. G- great message. Well, I'll leave a link to the MSA's website in the podcast description, so you guys can check out their work. And um, who knows when this is all over, go attend a baseball game at the Great American Ballpark. Yeah, but, great.
1: Uh, let's let's so- hope we let's hope we can go see a ball ball game really soon. I'm. I kind of miss baseball a lot. So.
0: Oh yeah. Oh, I don't. I don't know how. Mm, yeah, I, yeah. Don't get me started.
1: <laughs> no. But that's a that's a whole other podcast about. Yeah. It. I get that. So well, thank
0: <laughs> you so much, Mike. And this was awesome, and I learned a lot. And I'm sure everybody listening did, and we'll have to have you back on the podcast sometime. I'd be happy
1: to. I uh, uh, love talking about it, and thank you for reaching out to me. I uh, anytime, any place, I'd love to help people, and if they ever want to. Get in touch with me. They can always email through the office, uh, refer to the podcast so that sometimes things get lost in the mail, and just refer to that. And I'd be glad to answer questions, anything they might have come across themselves. So happy to help, whatever I can do.
0: All right. Thanks, everybody. Stay healthy out there. And uh, thank you, Mike. And have a great day. Signing off.
1: Thanks very much. All right.